question for you today. Uh, have you ever been thirsty? And I don't mean just the average thirst where a, a drink of water sounds good after a long walk or after you've been working out in the yard all day. I mean like really, really thirsty where your, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth and all you can think about is finding a drink. Can you ever remember a time like that? Well, that's the, uh, the theme of today's psalm text in Psalm 63 as David cries out to God, not about a, a physical thirst, but about something much, much deeper, a thirst that goes right to the very depth of his soul. And we're going to be looking again at, at Psalm, at the Psalter, rather, Psalm 63. And if you're just joining us today here for the first time or just logging online for the first time, uh, we've been doing an expository series through the book of Psalms, and we started at number one, and today we're up to 63. Uh, and it's superscribed a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And he writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So I, uh, I started out by asking you if you, if you know what it, it means to be really, truly thirsty, because if we're honest, more than likely we all take water for granted, right? I mean, after all, you probably got bottled water in your refrigerators at home. Uh, there's a water cooler over in the, the sanctuary. There's two fountains in the narthex. And even the kitchen tap is, is ready and waiting, uh, so that physically speaking, at the slightest twinge of thirst, it's not difficult to satisfy that craving, is it? Uh, even for me, who constantly has a drink in his hand. Now, Vicky will tell you it's a good thing that I'm not an alcoholic, because I'm always drinking something, right? Even the folks in Bible study will tell you they very rarely see me without my tea and lemon water. But whether you've experienced it or not, experts will tell you that dehydration can get you into serious difficulty in a hurry. But you know, that's equally true of spiritual dehydration, which is something the scriptures point to repeatedly. In fact, uh, we've seen David do that. Uh, he's done it more than once. If you remember back in Psalm 42, David wrote, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Uh, later on in our series, when we get to Psalm 143, we'll hear him say, I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as a parched land thirsts for rain. Uh, and today he sounds even more intense as he prays, uh, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Uh, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
But you know, as desperate as, as those verses sound, it's not necessarily a bad thing because if you think about it, just as bodily dehydration drives the whole of our physical being to want just an ordinary drink, a spiritual thirstiness can draw our hearts to focus on the source of living water. The same water that David's greatest descendant, our Lord Jesus Christ, promised to provide for all of his people. Uh, beginning with one very special lady in a very familiar story in the Gospel of John that I know you'll recognize, uh, the story of the woman at the well from John chapter 4. And I'm just going to read to you just a, a, a brief portion of it. We're not going to be looking at all of it, but John chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. So he, uh, meaning Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way, and Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, uh, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy food, and the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a, a rope or a, a bucket, she said, and this well is, is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Uh, and besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water, meaning the, the water in that well, would soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a, a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, so the, the woman said, give me this water, and then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, uh, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. So the woman said, you must be a prophet. So, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Amen. Just by way of, of a little bit of background, and while I'm telling you that, buddy, would you turn on the lights up here because now I realize why I can't see anything. Just by way of background, if you look back in history... Uh, about 900 years before this encounter between Jesus and, uh, and the woman, the Assyrian army had conquered Israel and kidnapped thousands and thousands of Jews, taken them back to Assyria uh, in order to keep an eye on them and, and prevent any future rebellion. Thanks, buddy. Uh, and that meant that there were a lot of empty farms and, and houses and businesses left behind in Jerusalem. And, uh, and the Assyrian king brought people from other countries he had conquered to fill those. He's kind of swapping people back and forth to keep them uh, on their toes. Uh, and that happened particularly to the city of Samaria in Israel, uh, where they set up housekeeping and a new life 
Uh, and they also set up a, a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. And so when years later, 70 years later, the Jews returned to the promised land, uh, these Samaritans that moved in didn't want to leave. They didn't want to give that land back. They didn't want to stop practicing the worship of their pagan gods. And this undercurrent, uh, all you have to do is turn on the news and you see it's still going on today uh, around the West Bank. But you can see why the Jews really hated those Samaritans. And I tell you all of that so you get a better sense of the woman's surprise when Jesus asked her for a drink. And you can kind of sense she's thinking, what is this, some kind of cruel joke at my expense? And it explains kind of her level of suspicion and, uh, and challenge that the woman has toward Jesus as their conversation unfolds. And she says to him, so how, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Only to have Jesus reply, if you knew the gift of God and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. And I really love how real and alive these stories become when you see how she reacts to that statement. Uh, probably like you and I might react to an unusual comment from a, uh, maybe an unknown and equally unusual stranger. So the woman responds to Jesus as if she were responding to a challenge. Uh, as if in this whole interaction, if it's going to be some kind of contest, she's determined she's not going to be the one to lose it. And so she jabs back at him and says, in effect, let me get this straight. Now you're going to give me a drink? So tell me, what are you going to use to dip the water out? This is a pretty deep well. Uh, and besides, in case you didn't know, it's an important spot and it's pretty special to us. Just who do you think you are anyway? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water from the well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And now suddenly the woman's intrigued. She misunderstands what he meant, but she's intrigued and she lets her guard down a little. And she's like, yeah, that's what I need. Then I, I won't ever get thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. And in her mind, she's probably thinking that I won't have to worry about running into any of those women from the village who look down their nose at me or or worse yet, running into any of the men who see me as either worthless garbage or possibly their next conquest. And she's working this all out in her mind, letting her, her thoughts kind of soar with the possibility of a fresh new start until Jesus brings her crashing back down to reality when he says, go and get your husband. And what she gives seems almost like a, a rapid-fire answer that she gives him back, maybe almost as a defense mechanism Maybe before Jesus' words had barely gotten out of his mouth, she blurts out, I don't have a husband. Now, over the centuries, commentators and, and preachers have focused on the woman's marital status, and I'm sure you've all heard sermons uh, discussing whether she'd been divorced five times, or she'd been married and widowed five times, or maybe even she'd had uh, five adulterous affairs with other women's husbands, and now she's on to number six. And we really don't know, and... And honestly, that's not my focus today anyway, because no matter which one it was, none of those life stories would ever be what any little girl would dream about for their future, would it? Then or now. And actually, in my opinion, no matter which way it was, it's only incidental to the story, because no matter how her life had progressed up to that point, the Master Jesus already knew about it, and he reached out to her anyway. 
And, and you know, when I think about that, it's kind of, I think it's both comforting and frightening at the same time to think about it for a moment that, uh, or, or I guess I should ask, what would it be like if we were fully known by someone else? What's it like for someone else to have uh, access and privy to the thoughts that go through our heads? What's it like to have all of your secrets you keep locked inside uh, known by someone else along with your past? Because if we're honest, for most of us, the prospect of being transparent with other people, uh, even people we trust, can be a bit unnerving, can it? We like to keep our secrets secret. Uh, we prefer to hold on to the stories of our past and, and only reveal them at our own discretion because we don't like to feel exposed and we don't like to feel shamed. And that's what's so beautiful about this passage because what we find here is although Jesus' knowledge of us is total and complete, its purpose is very different from what we're afraid of because God's knowledge of us is not intended to condemn us to public shame but to convict our hearts to turn to him and to hold open the possibility of a personal relationship with him, a personal relationship that calls us away from from the messes and the mistakes of our past and into a future that Jesus says becomes a fresh bubbling spring within us giving us eternal life no matter how much of an outcast you've been before and I think in that regard we all have a lot in common with a Samaritan woman don't we we've all been an outsider of one kind or another we're not all that we should be or all that we wish that we were uh, we've all done things in the past we wish we could change, or at least I know I have. Maybe things we'll never be able to forget. Some of us, I know, have scars so deep we think we're the only ones that know about them. And when we're all by ourselves, even when we try to distract ourselves by hauling around buckets of our everyday concerns, we realize uh, that we are not always who people think we are. And that's what's kind of going on inside the mind of the Samaritan woman today there by the well. When Jesus first speaks to her, she assumes that he doesn't know who she is or what she's done or the troubled water she's been through. But the truth is, our Lord knows her very well and he loves her just the same. And you know what, brothers and sisters, God knows who we are too. He knows who we are. He knows all of the polluted waters of our wayward lives. Uh, and you know what, he loves us anyway. By his sovereign grace, he sets us free to live with joy and he shows you and I uh, that we're only as sick as the secrets that we try to keep. Did you ever think about that? We're only as sick as the secrets that we try to keep, especially if you think you can keep a secret from God. And so now that our heroine starts to feel like Jesus is getting a little too close to the truth, a little too close for comfort with his questions, uh, she employs a, a really classic but dishonest conversation tactic uh, to jump stream on him. She tries to change the subject. Anybody ever do that with you when you're talking to them? Uh, you know what I mean? Right when you're in a serious discussion with someone and maybe they start to feel like they're losing the argument or they start to feel like maybe you're right. <clears throat> they realize they're wrong, so they redirect the flow of the conversation with another subject. And she must have really been squirming inside because she goes right off the deep end in verse 20. And she says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews... I like how she starts name-calling there. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we good Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? And so she doesn't just try to switch streams. She basically lobs a, a, a holy hand grenade at Jesus. 
She does the equivalent of, of something like saying to a Southern Baptist, is it okay to just get sprinkled? Right? Or, or, or asking a Catholic, what's so special about the Pope? Right? She really lays it out there. But you know, our Lord sets a great example for us here because he didn't become indignant. Uh, he didn't rain down insults on her. He didn't say, why you ignorant sinner? What kind of stupid question is that? Uh, no, he modeled what we should do and how we should react when folks ask us things about our faith that they don't understand. Or when people try to, to push our buttons over issues of doctrine. Or when someone tries to keep the focus on all of the things that divide us and threaten to drown any chance of coming to an understanding with someone else. Because you see, Jesus looks at her and he says in verse 21, Dear woman, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And you know, Jesus' answer to her is incredible because he's explaining to this ordinary woman, this dear woman, he calls her, something that his own disciples didn't even understand at the time. And he's showing her that just as the living waters of Christ's presence drowns the prejudices of this world, it also drowns the misconceptions people have about what the real worship of God should look like about whether it consists of following a rigid set of rules and regulations in order to maintain and to gain God's attention, or whether it's really just wading deeper and deeper into an intimate relationship with God. It's really it's just the way David prayed in our text today in Psalm 63. He said, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I'll bless you as long as I live, and in your name I'll lift up my hands. As if you remember the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle in David's day was a really unique and beautiful place adorned with gold and hung with colorful fabrics and embroidered linens. And you know, I'm sure the whole thing must have been amazing to behold, but the beauty of the tabernacle wasn't really found in the precious metals or the colorful fabrics. The beauty of the tabernacle was that it was the place where the presence of God dwelt with his people. But it was also the promise that one day God would make a way for all of his people, not just to know that God had a temple in their midst, but that he would come and live inside of their individual hearts. And that he was going to provide a Messiah that would bring something better than a, a sacred spot or a, a holy tent or a magnificent sanctuary, but to allow us to enjoy the overflowing presence of the living God dwelling right within us because brothers and sisters we're God's sanctuary now uh, now is the time now is the time that it no longer matters whether we worship the father on this mountain or that mountain in Jerusalem or anywhere else because brothers and sisters we're living in that time and that hour right now we don't need a temple in Jerusalem we don't need a temple on Mount Gerizim we don't even need the sanctuary here because our loving Savior took all of our poor choices and our checkered past and our persistent sins, and he continually drowns them in his grace. Drowns them through the life-giving blood and water that flowed from a completely different mountain, and that's Mount Calvary. So that all of us, whether we're men, women, or children of every tongue and tribe and race and nation, can worship God together in spirit and in truth on this World Communion Sunday. So let me ask you, are, are you parched with thirst today? Is your spirit longing for a place of refreshment and acceptance and of healing? 
Do you maybe have cracks in your heart that are allowing the, the flow of your life to spill out through it every day and drain out into this world? And then Jesus says, come to me. Come to the, the wellspring of life and receive God's gift of living water. It's yours just for the asking. And then go back into the world with that living fountain rising up within us. Go out as Christ's ambassadors. Go as though God were making his appeal directly through you. Go as a thirsty soul that's found a spring of water in the desert and tell other thirsty souls where they can find it too. And then come back and come to the table. Come to this table today and pray in David's words in Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Uh, as together as brothers and sisters, we eat our fill of God's grace and mercy and drink his promise of forgiveness until every sin is quenched and every heart is filled. Will you join me at that table? Let's pray together.